0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 37 of Material Issues. I'm Mark Hershberger of Pop Detective Records, among many things. And I'm joined, as always, by my very good friend and cohort in this uh, venture that we're doing, Mr. David Bash of the International Pop Overthrow Festival. David,
1: how the heck are you tonight? I'm doing fine, Mark. Uh, looking forward to episode 37. It's, episode uh, again, 30. Every week, every week, is, I say the same thing. I can't believe it's this many, but uh, here we are.
0: I can't believe the run of wonderful guests we've had, and we've gone sometimes outside of our what we call our comfort zone uh, with uh, some music-type stuff. And before you even say anything of who's coming on tonight, tonight's going to be an interesting one. People are going to start logging in. They're going to say, "Hey, this is different for the material issues, guys."
1: This, this is different. Yeah, man. This uh, is going to be awesome. I, I feel very confident that this will be a, a very informative interview, especially for us. Since, yes, uh, since this this is an arena in which we don't have a lot of experience, but uh, yeah, I have a feeling I might be purchasing a few books. Um, <laughs> we'll, well, I'm we'll
0: all, I'm already half. Well, you know, we haven't we haven't said who it is yet, but uh, I'm halfway into. One and I ordered six for my dad, but that just that's wow. just a, yeah, my dad's a voracious reader, as you know, and this is right up his alley. And I don't think he's uh he's read this uh this author that we're going to have on. So he's 93 years old and he'll get a care package that he's gonna love. Oh gonna wow. Absolutely love it. And he'll say, you're, this you're is more. You're a you good know. son. Yeah, well, he uh he deserves it. But um David, quick question for you. All right. You love CDs. We know you love CDs. You love vinyl. You love all formats and things. And you get a lot of CDs in. I know for a fact that you've carried portable CD players around with your travels to listen to CD. Do you use MP3 players? Do you dump things digitally down to MP3 and carry something smaller? Or is it always the portable CD
1: player? I haven't. It's really hard to find a good portable CD player these days. Anymore. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately those that I've had have, have broken beyond repair. So lately I haven't I haven't brought one. I've uh, either I've either used the um, the external CD drive that I have with uh, my new laptop because laptops these days don't have an Don't package. have a CD
0: drive, yep. No. Nope. Yeah.
1: So um, I either use that, or I've you know taken to using Spotify and Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. I know of which we don't want to go down that road again. <laughs> well, I posted on Facebook my feelings about Spotify and uh, <laughs> my you know my my philosophy in life is generally you've got to take the bad with the good. And no, it's not the good with the bad. Yes, it, it, you don't take the good with the bad. I mean, you know the the. Uh, the good is what you want. So you don't, it's not something you have to take. Sometimes you have to deal with the bad to get the good. So <laughs> you have to take the bad with the good. And, and I, you know, you, you have to do that in life sometimes. And yeah, while Spotify has its issues, some very major ones, it's also been very good for me in discovering music. and. Oh, it. here we go. Here we go. Yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about, about Spotify. Well, the rock- we will we will mention <laughs> briefly the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned it. That's, now we don't have to talk about it. Oh, but that's it's great. The same, it's the same damn thing. The, yeah. uh, the The announcements come in and people complain about who's on the ballot and it's not rock and roll. It's like everyone, and I say this with all the love in the world, get over it all right it has, the rock and roll hall of fame hasn't been rock and roll for years peace and, and love it's gonna get and it's gonna get worse and? as time goes by and there are no rock and roll acts left they're gonna have to <laughs> <laughs> because there really aren't uh, they are gonna have they are gonna have to nominate somebody or they become pretty much antiquated so can it be
0: can it be the rock and roll hall of fame with an asterisk
1: <laughs> at least an act, like two asterisks <laughs> Uh, I know uh, it says Facebook user, but I know who that is. <laughs> um, anyway, we can all talk right. about all that, but I think we—I think it'll be more um, pertinent to bring on our guest. And uh, speaking of Hall of Fame, if uh, this gentleman ends up uh, being elected to the uh, Literary Hall of Fame, if there is such a thing, i I, I don't know. Um, uh, it certainly would be apropos because he's written a lot of, uh, amazing books. He's had some bestsellers. Uh, he's still, he's been active, uh, for many, many years and, uh, still going strong. And yeah, it, it, it was almost accidental. In fact, he was, he had another vocation before he became an author and he just sort of fell into it. And, uh, you know, we're all lucky. We're all lucky he did. So, without further ado, would you please give a huge welcome? Hi, Andy, to uh, Mr. Alan Jacobson.
0: Good Hi evening, guys.
1: Alan. Hey Alan. How are,
0: How are you doing this evening, my friend? Nice to meet you. Same here. Same
2: here. It's wonderful to be on your show.
0: And uh, as we've as we briefly alluded to, uh, this is an author, and we've had an author on our show before. One of our one of our dear friends, but um, this not is not. anyone who's written books for no,
1: thirty years, though <laughs> not somebody
0: not somebody of this caliber.
1: So uh, oh, right. this
0: is uh, this is quite exciting. Uh, and as I mentioned, my dad is a voracious reader, and um, you know there are certain authors that he and I love and share the common uh, love for. We trade the books back and forth, and I buy him a ton, but we always look for that new author that's going to turn you on and then you have a whole batch of material and i'm happy to say alan jacobson my dad's got a load of your books on the way so uh
2: well i'll tell you a very quick story about a father and his son and my novels um i don't know about six years ago or so uh, i got an email from one of my readers who had emailed me previously about uh one of my books and he said, I just wanna tell you this story. My dad had cancer and he had been uh, in hospice for a few months and I ended up reading all of your books to him. And it was a uh, very important father-son time where they shared these, these uh, weeks at a time, just him reading to his dad. And he thanked me for that. And I mean, uh, you know, if there's something that can move you to tears, it's that, and yes. it, it kind of made you aware, made me aware that, hey, what I do matters, you know? It may well, be fiction, but it touches.
0: Exactly, and you know, we do we do this show and we talk to a lot of musicians whose songs have impacted people in so many ways throughout their life. Um, and to me, I, I, my dad, and myself, we're both voracious readers, and there are books that take me back to time and places, and it's the same kind of uh, emotional uh, impact as as a song too. It's the same yeah. kind of thing, and to have somebody say that to you, I can I can tell how that uh, can can make you really feel that what you've done has had an impact on at least yeah. somebody. Yeah, I mean.
2: You know, we all are reaching the age where we start to say, you know, do we matter? Have we done things in our lives that matter? And
1: um, that I'm was always wild. saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's interesting that you, it's interesting that you bring up uh, something to the effect that even fiction. Did, did you see the movie Sideways? Uh, yes, the uh, wine you're talking about with the wine industry. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I, it, uh, I've seen that movie so so many times, so I know a lot of the lines. But I remember, um, you know, Miles, the, the the protagonist, was writing his was writing his novel that he, he hadn't finished, and uh, they were asking his buddy Jack was getting married, and the woman's father, they they asked him about. They uh, I, I I lost you. the audio. Are you, are you? Do you hear us now? I Check can't one hear two. You. Can you hear me i yes. can hear
0: you alan could you hear us
2: um okay let me check uh, all right take your time
0: buddy it's all right
2: i didn't touch anything
0: i can hear you david right you can hear me yes yes okay you and i can hear us
2: okay let's try that
0: check one two alan are we okay. there
1: are we back? You got it? I can hear you. It's not okay. as good as the speaker I have, but this will work. Okay. All David, so back to you. Fine. Anyway, right. what I was saying is in Sideways, the protagonist, the protagonist Miles, who was writing a novel, um, he, he went over to his friend Jack's house, uh, or his Jack's bride-to-be's house, and her dad was there, and he was talking about novels, and he was saying, you know, with his accent, which I can't recreate, there's so many real things in the world to write about fiction's a waste of time. (laughs) And and Miles said, interesting perspective. Um, (laughs) I certainly don't think fiction is a waste of time. There's so, I mean, there's so many, you know, there's so many real things from which it draws and um, you know, I'm glad there are a lot of novel. Uh, I I had never even thought about that perspective, but I'm glad there are a lot of novelists out there.
2: Thank you. I mean, yes. I, The way I approach my novels, and I write, um, I have three series. They're all law enforcement-based. One involves an FBI profiler, a female FBI profiler. And another one involves uh, the Black Ops uh, group that, you know, the Navy SEALs used to be one of these groups before they became famous, and everybody knows who they are. Uh, (laughs) So there's one series that involves those, uh, that group. And then uh, a newer series that i just started that involves a fixer so that allows me a lot of latitude to tell different stories um so yes they're fiction but as you noted david there's uh there's a grounding in reality uh i write you know when i was an english major in college it was write what you know that's what we always kept hearing writers should write what they know right And as I started to think about that, I realized that if I'm gonna write what I know, that's pretty limited, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, even being a Renaissance person, you could travel the world, there's just gonna be a limited amount of things that you know, right, a limited number of things. However, um, if you can learn and educate yourself and work with the people that actually do what you're writing about, now, not only do you know that stuff, but you know somebody that you can ask if you have questions and who you can run the material by and have them read it and say, okay, you got everything right, except this is not the way we would do it. And then I'll say, okay, well, tell me how we'll do it and I'll see if I can uh, change it without ruining a character or a story um, to make it accurate. So mm-hmm. I always research my books very heavily. So, yeah, the fictional part are the, the characters I create and the stories that I make up, but a lot of it is based. In truth and uh, some reviewers a lot of reviewers over the many years that I've been writing have commented that this reads like a you know a rip from the headlines type story
1: right, uh, right. some
2: of it is um,
1: with my own spin on it
2: and, and I yeah. you know
1: Go ahead. I'm sorry Mark. one thing you know which is the thing I, I alluded to before we went on the air because I know this in, in a different form is is in junior high school uh, busing Coming into, oh. coming into play, and uh, being integrated in many different ways, including racially with other schools. Yeah. I had the same situation. I grew up in Poughkeepsie, I'm sure you know, yeah. and uh, while we didn't exactly have busing, we did have integration of schools from the middle class area that I lived and the lower class area that was also a part of Poughkeepsie, and it was culture shock on both sides, and um, you know, when you're, in, when you're in sixth grade, you don't necessarily understand the other side's perspective, but you very much did. Um, you went to bat for a, lo- a lot of the other black students, which which uh, which was very commendable for somebody in junior high to to be able to gain that perspective. Uh, I didn't have that until later on. Um, it wasn't just with me. I, I was abused by all the poor kids, black or white. <laughs> and I was never locked in a in a basement or whatever it was that you had. To, yeah. You had. I mean, uh, you know, physical and mental abuse for sure, but not as bad. When I read about what you went through, it's like, wow, okay, that's even worse. But how much of that has played into your writing? Everything,
2: as a writer, everything you see, smell, taste, experience, uh, definitely influences you. Uh, when you sit down to write, when you sit down to outline, that's one thing you can you can use that. But when you're in the character and when you're writing, things come out that uh, you you're not planning on, that weren't in your outline, and that's the beauty of it. Um, you know, we have debates uh, amongst ourselves, writers, authors, uh, which is better, outline or not outline. In fact, there's a term. It's a little derogatory, but not all writers consider it derogatory. Pantsers, you know, because they they fly by the seat of their pants. They don't know no what's coming up next, right? And then outliners who, um, you know, we're looked at as the anal group that, you know, we have to have a map as to where we're going. Otherwise, we can't write, can't create. Um, it's really not that black and white. I mean. Uh, yeah, some people do fly by the seat of their pants, but some have an idea of who the characters are, where they want to go with the story. And they just kind of, you know, they go with it. And that taps their creative juices. For me, I I have I'm a hybrid. I, I do outline. I know my ending before I start writing. But uh, I I allow myself the freedom to create as I go. And that could be, uh, you know. Coming up with some uh, another idea hits me, or I'm talking to uh, an FBI agent, and he or she will say something. I'll go, man, I didn't know about that. Okay, that's really cool. And then my brain starts, you know, going into
0: start taking in other, other directions. Yeah. yeah. And can and you br- well, yeah. can you briefly uh, uh, hit on that a little bit? Because you're you're known as an outliner. Um, my daughter is an aspiring writer. Um, and I know she'll be watching this uh, broadcast as well. So what does it mean when you say you're an outliner coming from somebody who doesn't really write on on the scale that you're writing as opposed to the pantsers?
2: (laughs) So um, I walk into my office and I know what I'm going to write that day. A pantser walks into his office, no clue. Uh, Lee Child, who's uh, one of the more better known names in my genre. Uh, he's more of a pantser. Uh, you know, he'll, he walks into his office and he doesn't know what he's going to write that day. Uh, I walk in and I know where I left off and I know in my outline, what is going to happen next. And that's where I, I begin. Now I used to use this analogy of I'm on a road trip and I have a map and I'm starting out in California, I'm ending up in Queens, New York, right? So I know what route I'm taking. But along the way, I may say, hey, you know what? That mountain range looks really cool. So I'll get off and I'll explore that mountain range. And then when I'm done, uh, I'll get back on the freeway and I continue along on my route until I see something else that's really interesting and I'll get off there. So I give myself the ability and creativity to explore and uh, and create and deviate from my outline. But I always get back on the freeway because that's going to lead me to what everything that I've been building and constructing is is leading to. And uh, I've never changed the ending once I start writing. But I've gone through the outlining process for weeks or months, uh, sometimes three months, before I start writing. And some of that is doing research as I'm outlining, what is, I, I try to, like I said, you to fact. Um, so I don't want to, you know, cop in, um, in New York city to go, what?
1: That's not how we do it.
2: Come on, man. You know, and close the book. So I, I do my, hope. Um, so, you know, that all goes into the outline when I'm writing the outline. The outline could be 30, 40, 50, 60 pages. It really depends. Um, It it was longer earlier in my career. I've noticed that they have become shorter. uh, So maybe 30, 40 pages now. But I'll start writing, and this I've always done, when I get a scene that occurs to me as I'm outlining, I just start writing that chapter right in the outline. So my outlines are kind of weird. They're not formal outlines, they're like, a yeah, blow by blow by blow and then all of a sudden there's a scene a chapter written and then it goes back into the outline
1: it's weird um i want to i want to uh, go back i, I want to go back to something that sort of allegory trip that you were talking about and how things sort of you you might like deviate from the uh, the path that you would originally intended that that brings to mind something you say on your website about randomness and there were three key sort of there were three key random events in your life that led you to doing what you're doing. One was having, uh, I guess, Mr. Bell as an English teacher two years, yeah. for two years, which pretty much uh, drove your affinity towards towards English, yep. then um, becoming a chiropractor and then having the, the injury to your hands. You were the yeah. Alan Harper of the literary world, uh, <laughs> and uh, you had the injury to your hands, which then uh, led you through, uh, and then the, uh, you know, the uh, having to give a recommendation to an employee and, uh, and then leading you to the blood spatter class in which there was the FBI, uh, FBI person. And you had the conversation. Um, Do you still believe that randomness is a huge, huge factor in in people's lives? Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, You can get very philosophical on this, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, you walk out of your house and you run into somebody and you talk to that person and it could be a long lasting friendship that influences how you make decisions in life or you could get hit by a car. Right. And that changes. You know, maybe you can't. You were a runner. Now you can't run anymore. So now that's going to change your life. For me, the injury to my wrist was at the time horrendous. I mean, I was a very successful chiropractor. I loved doing what I was doing. Talk about helping people, making a difference. I mean, that was the epitome of it. I mean, so I was super happy. And then, uh, you know, tore the ligaments in my wrist. And that was like, well, now what? I mean, you know, that was that was a very, very painful year plus uh, when that happened. and. As I mentioned, I was uh, I, had, I got an English degree, and it was the most natural thing. Uh, and you mentioned Mr. Brill, Lou Brill, excuse me, I still call him Mr. Oh, Brill. Bro, I said, no, um, I said no. you know, a, a twelve or thirteen year old student. But um, he, yeah, had a tremendous influence in that is why I got my English degree in college was because he he opened my eyes to the beauty of English and writing and a uh, very funny story is that when no way out came out which is the fifth karen vale novel i had written i had dedicated the book to him and the dedication was a um a, a very very short lesson from one of his classes that i remember to this day and and i actually there are several that I, that I remember from his class, but this one was such a simple one. And it's the, the simplicity is its beauty. And it was teaching the importance of commas, right? So grammar, is really dry oh, stuff, yeah. right? But he made it fun. And here's an example. The dedication went something like this, you know, it, it mentioned what it was and why I was dedicating the book to Lou Brill. And then... I said, he wrote on the board, and I still remember him writing this on the blackboard. Now, this is, I don't know, 40 years ago now, maybe a little bit more. Um, <laughs> and he's writing it on the board, and he, wrote, he writes, let's go eat, comma, grandma, period, right? So let's <laughs> go eat, grandma. And then he takes the eraser, and he faces everybody. Yeah, and he what's coming. And he wipes away the comma, let's go eat grandma. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going. Holy shit, that's, compas are important, right? So (laughs) fast forward now a couple of weeks, I handed the manuscript in and I get an email from him out of the blue. Now, you know, this, uh, I knew him to me at the time. He was an old guy, right? Teaching a class. He was probably 27, right? know, know. (laughs) really. He's a lot older now as am I, and when you have an English teacher and a novelist emailing back and forth, you can imagine they are not short emails. They are long emails. (laughs) And you can imagine the grammar is checked before (laughs) hitting (laughs) again. So corresponded, right? And then I said to him, you know, you're not going to believe this, but the book that's coming out, whatever it was, September, so it was a few months off, is dedicated to you. And I said, I'm not going to send you the dedication until the advanced reader copy comes out. and I'll, I'll send that to you. And fast forward now to Thriller Fest, which was a big, uh, still is a big uh, uh, conference for thriller writers and their fans in New York City. And I had a panel discussion. It was on a panel and uh, my publisher happened to be the, the promo, uh, promotions department chair was on the panel with me. And at the end of the, the panel, this gentleman comes up and introduces himself. He says, Alan, I really enjoy that panel. I just want to introduce myself. I'm Lou Brill. And I swear my job, exactly what you just did, David. That's what my expression was. I was beside myself, right? So I, I, I turned to my publisher and I said, this, this is my seventh and ninth grade English teacher. <laughs> and it was an amazing moment. We took uh, photos together, We chatted. Um He actually had a a feature article in his hometown uh, newspaper on Long Island, uh, and it was him holding up a T-shirt that his daughter had made for him years before that said, let's go eat grandma. Let's go eat, comma, grandma. Commas save lives. (laughs) It was hilarious, right? The best. Um, uh oh, so it. he was wearing that with a copy of No Way Out that he was holding up. So it was, it was an awesome. So you uh, didn't recognize him at all, huh? I did not. Wow. I, I know I still have my image of him. I can picture him completely clearly. But, you know, when somebody's, I'm guessing he was 27, might have been 23, 25. Who knows? Now he's 80 you know i don't remember oh, yeah but, right. but everybody right.
0: looks the way they looked the last time you see them exactly so i don't look like i look you know nah, i have exactly. the same
1: experience recently on facebook somebody posted a fifth grade picture which in which you know i i was in and i looked at everybody and it's like i know they're all my age now but this is how they're supposed to look they yeah. didn't look they didn't look to me like a group of t- fifth graders from today <laughs> would look they look like they're supposed to look, uh, you know, the images they match the images in my head. So I totally get that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Alan, uh, yes. You know, speaking of the Karen Vale, uh, series, there's yeah. a question that came in from Andy Hartley right here. Can you, can you see it? How important is it that uh, you get the procedures and things correct, or does it depend on how you want the story to develop?
2: It's a good question. Uh, it's very important for me to get it right. Uh, so, you know, there's a few stories I could tell on that. One was, I was working on a novel in the Karen Vale series. It involved the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, I was working with the DEA. I had to get congressional subcommittee approval to, they had to get it. I had to get it for them to work with me because they wouldn't, you know, it's sensitive stuff. They wouldn't talk with me, and even though I had high up contacts and connections. They were like, we want to help you, but we need we need to go through the proper channels. I mean, they are a stickler, uh, just like the Bureau, the FBI, on procedure and so on and so forth. So uh, it took several weeks. I got clearance, and uh, then I started working with some really uh, high-level individuals and field agents, and one who had uh, finished his career with the Office of Professional Responsibility, which is like the police department of the police. So uh, they make sure that uh, you know that the agents do what they're supposed to do and that they don't break the law and so on and so forth. So he was a stickler for procedure, right? As you can imagine, that's what he did, right? It was his job. Oh, yeah. So he read, and what I try to do is share the, the manuscript with my experts so that I make sure that I'm not screwing up the information they gave me and and ruining it uh you know so he calls me up and he goes Alan you're not gonna be happy Like, what's up what's he goes the scene with you know x my and this it just it really bothers me it breaks procedure and I just can't oh, see okay. an agent doing it I don't even want to know that an agent might do something like this so he was really upset with it and You know, it was the first time I really uh, had the thought of, oh, my God, you know, okay, so now I have a decision to make. Do I leave it and say it's fiction, you know, get over it, which I would say. But, you know, I was going on the the eagles, you know, like you mentioned before before I came on. Um, Or, uh, you know, do I find a way to fix it? And
1: I vote for find a way to fix it. Exactly.
2: And that's what I did. And I said to him, so how could this happen? And he goes, you know, why don't you do it like we used to do it in the old days? And it's like, oh my God, I I like this already. So he tells me a suggestion and I'll be damned. It was even better than what I had done, what I had written in that scene that that upset him. So I changed it. I rewrote that chapter and a, a couple other things that followed and I was really much happier that not only was able to keep it real, but uh, I was able to do it in a way that
1: improved the, the manuscript. So, you know, it was a win-win, and right. that's always yeah. going to be my goal. I'm and- very happy that that's your philosophy, because if there's one thing personally that I can't stand is when I'm, I'm – let's say I'm watching a TV show or a movie that depicts a certain time period other than the one that we're in. Mm-hmm. And there's inaccuracies in terms of vernacular, especially, or factual inaccuracies, things that may that didn't actually, it drives me up a wall. And I realize 99% of the people who watch these things don't care. And exactly. that's kind of the reason why the people who write them and produce them don't care, but I care. And I'm sure there are other people. And I'm glad you do too. Yeah.
2: No, I mean, look, I, I see these shows too. Uh, there are a lot of FBI shows. There are a lot of serial killer, you know, and profiler. And sometimes the writers will throw around the term FBI profiler. Well, I've worked with the profiling unit for, you know, I don't even know how many years now. But at the time I wrote the seventh victim, it was more than seven years, and it's just continued. You know, now it's I don't know twenty years. And uh, I, I, you know, I see. The crap, and it's not just, it's in novels, it's in TV shows, it's in movies. And, you know, all you can do is just roll your eyes. And I I used to, you know, bitch to my wife during the show.
1: <laughs> oh, come on. She's like, okay, you know what? You're ruining it. You know <laughs> well, I, I've got to watch you. TV with you, Alan. Be doing the same thing.
0: Yeah, the two of you sit there going, oh, come on. No, I agree. Come on. But exactly. speaking of authenticity, though, Alan, uh, you're – you're known for uh, being well-traveled in uh, going to places that uh, uh, are going to be featured or, or talked about in, in, your, in your novels and really getting in. And I'm halfway through Inmate 1577 right. and I heard you went to Alcatraz and spent time yeah. inside the rock to get the feeling of yeah. what it would be like on the inside, so to speak.
2: I spent a lot of time there, uh, a number of trips. I wrote some of the scenes there with my laptop, uh, in some case, you know, there's there's an escape that occurred uh, on Alcatraz that I include in my novel and basically insert my character into that escape. And the scene where uh, they come out of the cell block and and weld or uh, you know cut through the bars, I'm sitting there with my laptop and the bars that they cut through three inches behind me, uh, my left ear. So, you know, that's the kind of realism that you can't ask for uh, and can't achieve unless you go. Um, there were scenes I wrote in Las Vegas where I was I sat in a restaurant right on the strip watching the Bellagio fountains and music going off as I'm writing that scene, which is in Velocity. Um, I can go on and on, but, you know, England, No Way Out is set almost all entirely in England. My wife and I made three trips there uh, to London and uh, the outskirts that are that are you know featured in the story. I walked down every street that it, I worked with Scotland Yard, um, the the inspectors, and I can DCI. I can't even remember all their titles because it's different. And they asked me not to include them. Uh, they're. they're <laughs> well, I, I, I brought a signed book with me, and they wouldn't even take it because they were not allowed to take gifts. They were right, very, right. even more buttoned down, I would say, than the FBI. Um, but it was during that trip that I actually had to be an ambassador for the FBI, for the profiling unit, because of um, one of the uh, heads of the precincts there. It wasn't a precinct, but one of the uh, 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 metro offices uh, that, where the police were located in, in this not so great neighborhood, um, and he had a um, he had a good point, but he was uh, mixing how things were done in England with how the FBI profiling unit does it, and it he he was completely right to have his concerns, but it didn't translate over to profiling in general, uh, and I, I I informed him. So I'm sitting there, you know, and there's like seven or eight. Of of the police, you know, and and high up people, because some of them brought me over to this station that morning, and I kind of like step back as they're having a discussion of what I just said, and I'm thinking, wow, how, did I ever think that I would find myself in London in a police station with you know executives of the Metro uh, Police Department and counseling them on how the fbi works and standing up for the fbi instead of it was just a weird out-of-body moment Uh, so it does matter to me i do travel all over the world uh in the lost codex there's several chapters take place in paris and i remember walking downstairs after finishing that section of the novel and saying to my wife i feel like i just spent another three weeks in paris it was that intense because when you're writing, you're just so totally engrossed. Um, and then Dark Side of the Moon, which is one of the opposite team black books, half that book is set on the moon. And yeah, I remember I, when you
0: went there, that was really
2: interesting. <laughs> it, I had a decision to make because I didn't want people to think it was science fiction. So I made sure, you know, there you're talking about research, right? So I had to use present day, technology and, and, um, information that NASA. I basically I had to use stuff that we have now, not near future stuff, but today. Right. So I, and I had zero contacts in this realm. So it wasn't like calling up, you know, one of my FBI agent friends and saying, Hey, do you have anybody that you could, you know, connect me with a DEA or what? This was, I, I don't, I didn't know any astronauts. I didn't know any, uh, rocket scientists. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know what I did. My wife,
1: she would have helped you. (laughs) My wife's an aerospace engineer. So Ah, there you go. If you ever (laughs) need any help,
2: you can pick her brains. Have her read Dark Side of the Moon. She'll enjoy it. Um, (laughs) I will. I eventually found an astronaut nearby. It was another one of those. How did, you know, weird. How did this happen? It just, you know, weird combination of things, right place, right time. And why I asked this person if. She knew an astronaut. No friggin' idea, but I did, and she did, and anyway, it was, it was just another one of those. Uh, well, so if
0: we hear about a Northern California man that jumped out of a seven forty-seven with a million dollars strapped to his back. We pretty much know it's you doing a DB Cooper type thing, right? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you're not supposed to tell people about that.
1: <laughs> so what was the? Um, here's a question you get a lot, I'm sure, but we'll ask it anyway. Um, what was the inspiration for Karen for Karen Vale, the first female FBI profiler? So that
2: is a really interesting question, and it took me actually years to realize what that answer was. The obvious answer is not really a true answer; uh, it's only a partial answer. So, um, Karen Vale. What you know, her backstory is that she was a, an NYPD uh, beat cop before she went to the FBI and then uh, promoted to the profiling. So, you know, uh, I was born and raised in New York. She was born and raised in New York. Um, she has a sarcastic side to her that lessens outwardly lessens as the series goes on. Like in the first, in the seventh victim, it's like she's in your face with the sarcasm, right? Right. Um, it lessens as the series goes on because she realizes not everybody likes sarcasm, uh, better to keep it to yourself. So we still, she still has these sarcastic thoughts, but they're internal thoughts and monologue. She is a very funny, very funny character. Um, but uh, she, I realized a lot of her, Attitude comes from my upbringing in New York, and that's sarcasm, as you know, David. I mean, that's right. the way people relate to each other. Oh, you know too, Mark. I mean, that's Easterners. That's not yeah. an unusual way to to to. But when I moved to California, and uh, my first roommate in chiropractic school uh, told me, you know, sarcasm not so good here. Yeah. Uh, and he also started making fun of my New York accent, and I lost the New York accent, as you could tell. Well, mostly. And yes, you have, and I did too, uh, yeah, by design. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. And the sarcasm, I like, tucked away, although it kind of comes out with my wife, and she's like, "Put that sarcasm away." Um, but it, you know, it 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 comes out with Karen Bell. But now, the. The partial answer that's only partially true is that I worked with two uh, senior FBI profilers, uh, Mark Saffrick, being the one that I met that you alluded to at the blood spatter yes. pattern analysis course for the Department of Justice, and uh, his partner, Mary Ellen O'Toole. And Mary Ellen was the second female FBI profiler. The first one didn't last very long. So in my mind, Mary Ellen really was the first, and she was uh, very open and forthcoming with the issues that she faced being a woman in the FBI, number one, that was a big deal then, and then even worse, being a woman in the profiling unit dealing with serial killers and disgusting stuff that, you know, men do to female bodies. And a lot of the other agents didn't think she'd be able to handle it and she did she she didn't have a problem with it um just because she was female right but she had to deal with that and um some of that made its way into the early books of the karen series probably the well definitely the seventh victim maybe a little bit in crush but you know that also dissipated as the series went (laughs) along and um she The the story relative to Mary Ellen is that I had written the first 75 pages of The Seventh Victim, and which at that time was called Dead Eyes. I have never disclosed that except on your show. This is the first (laughs) time you're honored. Um, And um, so I wrote the first 75 pages, sent it off to my agent, and it came to me, Karen Vale just came to me, another one of those, like, I wasn't planning her, I just needed an FBI agent for this other book, and boom, it's like, oh, Karen Vale, K and V, you know, tough, hard letters, okay, great, that's it, that's the character's name, and boom, I just started writing, and she just flew from my fingertips, and I, I took her out of that book later, and stored her away. I said, I got to use her someday. It's amazing. And then when I started doing my research with, uh, Mark Safra, I, I realized this is the character I need to tell this story. And, uh, and I started writing it and I sent it off to my agents. So it was told, it was written in the first person. So I, you know, and she, uh, she said, no, 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 no. You got to Get rid of all this, start again. It's got to be the third person because your first two books were written in the third person, and you'll confuse your readers. And so oh, wow. you know, she knew better than I did. She was in the business longer. Um, and uh, you know, that's what you have your agent for. Yeah. So I was just though very upset because I thought it was the best writing I'd ever done. And uh, you know, <laughs> I, I I basically used Microsoft Word and I did find and replace, and I changed all the eyes to she, and wow. you know, so I it was it was kind of like an act of frustration, but what I ended up with, with some rewriting to smooth it out and everything, was a first person sensibility in the third person, and that it worked. Was very, yeah. it, it was it worked, and then some of the the uh, the internal monologue, the thought process, I put in italics so you know it's her thoughts, and some of that's very funny, and I alluded to the fact that you know some of The the Karen Bell series is funny, Um, and that's part of it, is that you hear her, you know, some of the things we would think and never say, we see what she's thinking, you know? It's pretty funny. Um, So Mary Ellen, uh, I I did not know her at this point, and I went, I would go to the FBI Academy and fly back to Quantico fairly regularly to um, meet with Mark and... uh, he would take me on the tour of the uh, the academy and the profiling unit, which at the time was in the same place. Uh, eventually, they moved the profiling unit away, about uh, 15 minutes down the road. But um, at the time, it was just it was like being in Silence of the Lambs world, right? I mean, it, that's where the those scenes were filmed right there, and that's what it was like, uh, exactly as you saw in that film. And you know, dark, no windows. You're in the sub basement um and uh i was sitting in mark's office and we were chatting about one of the story points that i wanted to do so i was he was helping me and all of a sudden so i'm sitting at on the other side of his desk to my left is the door to the to his office door flies open and i just hear you know this woman (laughs) Yelling at him, not at him, but she's really worked up about a case and she's pissed and she's cursing. And and then she steps forward. She 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 saw Mark's eyes flick over to me. Right. Right. So she peers around the edge of the door and she sees me and she points. (laughs) and goes, you're you're Mark's friend, the the author. And I'm looking at this woman, right, this redhead, this uh, agitated and, um, you know, real. I, and nothing is held back. She is what you see is what you get. That is Karen Vale there, and I'm going like, oh my God, there's my character. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I said that to her. I said, I don't want you to get the wrong idea, but I just wrote the first 75 pages of my book, and you, you are my character. You even physically resembled her. So wow. That was the beginning of it. And as I said, Mary Ellen was um, extremely helpful in helping me understand uh, from a female perspective, not just how she fit into the unit, but how the serial killers related to her Mm. and how she would interrogate, approach interrogation, or excuse me, an interview. Because how, um, so Mark Safrick is 6'6", 260, something like that. Mark, if I got that wrong, I apologize. <laughs> but I know he's 6'6", six, six and he's 2-something, right? Imposing guy, right? So he sits down across from the serial killer. Uh, that, that's going to be very different than a woman who's 5'5", five, five or 5'6", five, walking in, and sure. the serial killer thinking he's going to control that conversation, right? Okay. Because that's what they all want to do. Uh, so her response, her uh, approach is very different from Marx was and is, and therefore, you know, I writing Karen Vale, I decided, you know, I'm going to use a little of both and and uh, incorporate that into my character. And uh, you know, there were times when I would bring a story during one of my visits. I'd say, okay, here's here's the concept I have for this novel. Uh, here's the killer. Here's the set, the setup, and then I'd watch them debate it, and I you know <laughs> write down their comments, yeah. and thoughts, it, and yeah. it, it, it was gold. Yeah. Um, but, excuse me, that, that's a spam call.
0: Um, no, that, that's that's your friend who's six foot six, but only two forty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God,
1: well, it right is. See? <laughs> but, <laughs> see right there. there we go. That's all. Right. all right. That's hilarious. As I scary. wanted to you brought up serial killers and you know obviously the uh, the standard response after a serial killer is uncovered is you know I knew him and I, you know he seemed like such a charming guy. Um in your opinion is there a tell that that most people just don't see?
0: And do you see it in David right now at all? No. <laughs> I mean,
2: well, I have watched about him. Yes, I have. Um, I don't think there is because they are, their um, success rides on their ability to blend in and not be, uh, not have their anomaly exposed to others because they, have some very strange um, rituals that they do with bodies, and how you know? I mean, I don't have to go into it; it's it's gory, but you know, they do some weird stuff with bodies. And sure, um, if if they were to expose that in any way, then people, I mean, you know, not only would they be caught, but they wouldn't have access to the people they want to have access to, to, to right. you know hunt for their prey and and ultimately kill them so no they blend in very very well and that's a major feature uh, of how they uh, how they are so successful
1: for a period of time before they're not uh, but can an expert can an expert tell
2: during so you mean just meeting a guy in in the street having a conversation
1: well, I mean, let's let's say, and you talk about randomness. Let's say an, an, an FBI expert were to encounter uh, somebody who has killed and nobody knows it yet, would they be able? Would they be able to see something that everybody else couldn't see? So, yes, they would. So,
2: at the crime scene, absolutely, absolutely. But if um, there, if if I'm meeting you for the first time. And let's say you were one of these uh, uh, killers and we're just having a conversation. I I might pick up that you're you have psychopathic tendencies, but a large percent of the population has psychopathic tendencies. That doesn't make make them a killer. Um, So, no, I would say unless they're having an in-depth conversation and the killer is not very smart which of which there are some some are very bright some are not um but you know their survival uh rests on their ability to hide that side of of their personality so that they are not you know talking about killing a dog or you know a squirrel and cutting them open and seeing what's inside that's going on in their mind that's not something they're going to have as a conversation now totally different if a a detective walks into a crime scene he sees a murder sees the blood spatter sees the body um, he's looking at it forensically a profiler walks into that same crime scene he's seeing completely different things so he's looking he sees the forensics and he'll know what the forensics mean but he's looking at different things he's saying huh the victim's face is covered by the dress. The dress is drawn up and covering the face. That's very significant, and that tells him something about the killer. He sees that there are cut marks on the abdomen. The detective goes, hmm, okay, yeah, um, that's that's weird, but you know, Keep the profile... My bladder, my bladder is interrupting me. Here.
0: Keep talking, Alan. I'm listening to you. It's fascinating. So,
2: you know, they it's, it's like knowing a language and being able to understand it. Versus yeah. hearing words, people discussing something and it meaning nothing because you don't know what those words mean. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the profiling unit has been uh, working with detectives all over the world to educate them, not so that they could profile their own cases per se, but to know when they're dealing with something that should be referred to right, uh, yeah. a professional profiler, such as the profiling unit or if you know their agency has a, a, a trained profiling team to, to refer to them as well. Which
0: goes so far deeper than the average person knows. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and which is what you get into. But uh, you know, as our time is starting to wind down a little bit, there's two two questions that I really wanted to ask. I and mean, we've covered so much here tonight. But um, looking at the poster behind you, Velocity, Alan Jacobson, and you know, looking at the box sets that are on David's wall, there, all the stuff. As far as we come from the music side of things, yeah. how 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 involved are you, and how important is it that book covers look the way they look? So, what is your involvement, and what do you think the importance of the
2: cover of the book is? Uh, I think the cover is incredibly important on a book. Um, I like the the Velocity cover. Um, This happened to be left over from a book signing and it was like, that's really cool. I'm going to hang it on my wall. Um, But a book cover so vitally important and so different from, you know, the old CDs that we used to get that had and and albums, LPs before that. um, The album art and, and it's just very different. The the book cover so here's uh, the Lost Girl, which is the, my latest book, which is the. I to try to do it here. Uh, the Mickey Keller series, and you know, you could see the design. It's it's designed to draw you in. You know, you see the 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 mother and the, the lost girl here, and it's a very emotional um, cover. It's it's it has something to do with the story. Album art for music, it. it doesn't necessarily have anything to do. No, with not it, at know. all. I don't like exactly. Um, so that's one big difference. Uh, music is. I love music. I have music on all the time in my office, and uh, i I write with music, and I write with specific music sometimes. So if I'm writing a fast scene, I don't want some. You know, a ballad. It it helps to have something that's a little faster. Um, if I need to be extremely creative, I'm putting on Electric Light Orchestra. ELO. Jeff Lynn is, you know, just a, an amazing
1: big favorite of both of us.
2: Yep. yep my favorite uh, musician. And uh, I, when I need to get my writing done, ELO goes on and the creativity flows. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not just that. I mean, I listen to the strokes and green day and Amy man and cage the elephant is one I've, discovered recently guster the killers uh the kooks bare naked ladies uh the cars going back to my childhood nice. um counting crows um of course bob seger towed the wed spro- sprocket <laughs> another one of my you know favorite groups um I mean, it, it's just it, Ingrid Michelson and, uh, well, The Beatles, Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney. You know, it, it's just uh, there's a few out there. Yeah, there's. <laughs> it, gets, it gets put the right music on and I'm writing and, uh, and it's just a, a perfect soundtrack, too. Now, also, interestingly, when I'm writing the climaxes um, and I know when I'm about to hit the climax of my novel, which will usually last about 50 pages, give or take. Um I start to see the whole it's like a film in my in my uh in my mind. I, I with music. And I'm not a musician, so I don't I can't write music. I always wish I could have written, you know, learn to write music, but uh I, I this this music just plays as as the movie plays in my mind as I'm writing. I've
1: written stuff. some liner notes for CDs and I find that my the writing flows out of me when I listen to Prague in the background. Um, melodic Prague. There's a there was a label called Harvest Records. I'm sure you know about them being an ELO fan. Yeah, um, there was a box set of of Harvest called Harvest Festival, a bunch of stuff on the label. I wrote a l- liner notes for a, a 60s band called the The Millennium for their three C D set. Very soft pop, a little bit psychedelic. So what I was listening to was not in the same arena but it really caused the words to flow out it's the perfect background music for me
2: and and sometimes that's uh that'll make the difference between me being able to just immerse myself and and have the creative juice flow uh and and not and um you know what one of the your viewers mentioned uh, George Pelicanos, and he's an incredible writer, very, very talented. Uh, and he uses music apparently as well. I never asked him about that, um, but not surprising. Uh, I, I think a lot of a lot of us do. Although some writers, some authors, they want complete quiet. They cannot write. I can't write if it's a lot of slower, like if it's the moody blues, some of their, their spoken slower. I, I It just, it interrupts. I, I can't, I can't do Right. That. You're
1: forced, you're forced to actually listen to the lyrics and you don't want okay. to be doing that. Exactly. exactly. And real
0: quick, Alan, I'm scrolling across the bottom of the page, alanjacobson.com. That's where everybody can really find all your social media sites, everything about all of your writing and things. So alanjacobson.com is the, is
2: is the base for
0: everything. Correct.
2: That, that is it.
1: Yeah. Where can good. people order your
2: books? So, you know, Amazon, uh, your local uh, independent bookstore can order them because, you know, they, they have limited space. So they're probably not stocking my books. But then again, you know, Barnes & Noble probably isn't stocking them either. Um, Which another,
0: another question I had. Do you lament as we lament, uh, you know, vinyl shops and even CD shops going out of business from a writer's standpoint? I mean, we've got Barnes & Noble. And there's some little mom and pop places and, and whatnot, but the physical product is not what it used to be as far as availability. And we talk about the covers and how important a cover, you know, standing out is. Yeah. Uh, from from your from your point of view, what what does that mean for an author or a writer if the physical product is on a I don't know what kind of plane we're talking about anymore? But uh,
2: you know, so- musicians have the same problem. It's a mixed bag. Uh, the the ebook revolution, let's call it that, just mm-hmm. like kind of MP3s taking over, right? Um, the ebook revolution, I think, was I think it saved publishing. I think it saved a lot of authors' careers for a number of reasons. Um, I remember. I mean, I've been in publishing since uh, 1994, uh, and I remember when. Your book was in the stores for at most six weeks, if you were fortunate, and then it was gone. It was shipped back to a warehouse, and it couldn't be gotten unless somebody came in and requested it, and it got shipped from a warehouse back. Then it was remaindered, and then it was torn up and shred, and it was gone, and then it was out of print, and nobody could get it. Um, Nowadays, books don't go out of print because there's the ebook and it costs nothing to warehouse it causes costs nothing to ship so to speak over the airwaves and um so a lot of books that were out of print are back in print and people are reading it and authors you know are, are able to uh, collect their royalties from old, very very old works uh that was something that never existed so we have to keep it all in perspective i personally like reading ebooks um, I like hardcovers too, but, um, I, I, when I travel and, or I'm standing in line at a bank and I can pull out my, my iPhone and pull up the, you know, Kindle app or the iBooks and read right there where I left off last night in bed. I mean, that's just incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And, um, so again, I, but I'm a, I'm a tech guy. I understand technology uh for me i'm comfortable with it there are some people who need to be holding this physical book and my my daughter
0: uh, my daughter hannah's like that a bit though she she loves the physical as we do with vinyl and yeah, we like that you know absolutely yeah
2: and i i totally get it you know um i i had hundreds of cds right and i had to clear out my office because we refloored it and it's like what do i do with all these cds and you know my wife's like well get rid of them you don't need them you know because <laughs> you're gonna stream, right and i'm like get rid of them she's like well yeah what are you saving them for you know you you've apple music has anything you want and i couldn't argue with that logic but and it does take up a lot of space you know hundreds of cds but at the same time she wasn't wrong, but it was right. <laughs> I hope you kept them. I remember getting rid of all my LPs when we yeah. moved from yeah Sacramento to uh, the Bay Area, and that was, of course, you know back then it was like, well, there are no record players anymore. So no, yeah. well, yeah. look what happened.
0: And I have put-
1: one last question for you, go ahead, David. Um, yes, go ahead. I got
0: one. I have one after you. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, this has been awesome, but I have one last. I'm not going to ask you who your influences are because I know you don't want to leave anybody out. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I've I've read that your some of your books have been optioned. Um, I would love to see the Karen Karen Vale uh, series become a TV uh, you know, yeah. Netflix or so or some streaming series. If you have your choice of who to play Karen Vale, who would it be? Mm. Oh, good question.
2: It is a good question, and my answer has changed over the years because, you know, when The Seventh Victim came out in 2008, uh, there was one set of actresses that I, you know, would have given you. Uh, and they've, you know, it's no longer the same set of actresses. You sure. know, a lot of time has passed. Um, I remember my agent uh, emailing me one day, and he goes, "Could Sharon Stone play Karen Vale?" And this was, I don't know, maybe three years ago, four years ago now. And I'm like, Ugh, "Wow, okay. Um, probably 20 years earlier, she could have. Oh, but yeah. you know, probably just a, just not the right age for no, Karen yeah. Vale. But I think she would have done a damn fine job. Oh God, yeah. In the right age group." Um, you know, there's uh Elizabeth George is an actress that I think would be uh, you know, she was in a series The Hunted, which I think only lasted one season. Mm-hmm. And I remember Hunted. I remember that because I wrote a book called The Hunted. Um, so uh, but that was she was just awesome in that. And I thought, man, she could she would do a great job playing playing Karen Bell. She's the right age. So, you know, she would be one of my top choices. But, you know, then you're talking about TV or feature. And we had, we had an offer for a feature film at the same time we had an offer for a TV series, a uh, TV movie, uh, two-hour TV movie with the potential to develop them, uh, Karen Vale into a TV series. Oh, this yeah. was with um, TNT. And my agent said, which one do you want to take? And I was like, well, how, <laughs> how do you make that decision, right? It's a, good, it's a good decision to have to make. But he said, look, you go movie, five years, from now we could still be saying, Why haven't they gone before the cameras? What's going on? Or if the studio head changes and he says, uh, get rid of all the old projects. Where I want all my, you know, my name on all the projects. He said, TV within six months, 99.9% chance it's gonna be uh, on screen. Said, oh, okay. So we went the TNT route, Turner. And uh, the, the idea was 12 best-selling novels adapted to uh, film. And uh, Scott Turow's, uh sequel to Presumed Innocent was the first one. And there, there were a bunch of really uh, skilled authors. And they, the first six were, were filmed and uh, aired. And then we were going to be number seven. And I was co-producing. We had a great uh, producer who uh, got it because sometimes the author's vision doesn't align with the producers. And they commissioned a screenplay. Uh, it was a female screenwriter. She did a fantastic job adapting it, which is very difficult. Two hours from 400 page novel can't you know, sometimes you lose a lot of stuff. She, she did a great job with it. Um, and the ratings were horrendous. And I didn't realize what the issue was. All I knew is that uh, the sponsors pulled out and there went our multi-million dollar, I think it was a four million dollar budget. We we had tax incentives from North Carolina to film there. Anyway, it fell apart. Uh, We got the rights back, fortunately. And uh, about a year later, I was talking with Scott Tarot about it. And he said, well, you know what happened, right? And I went, no, they never told me. He said well the nba went on strike they went yeah he goes the nba on tnt yeah TNT is the nba that's our whole advertising platform so when it when they went on strike they they didn't have a backup plan i guess to promote it and the, the movies tanked and anyway so wow. thanks guys you know Another yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that was that was basically my question david was uh, getting into exactly that he's covered my 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 final uh, volley so uh it was all good uh alan we thank you so much for joining us here in Absolutely. Um, thank you guys um, we always get to this point where it's like heck we could have gone on for another hour uh you've been a wonderful guest and this has been as somebody posted earlier fascinating conversa- conversation and uh, uh we, we appreciate your time we do and alanjacobson.com is where you can find out more on Alan and all the books he's written and get them on Amazon uh, as I did (laughs) (laughs) and enjoy the heck out of them. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you
2: very much. It was a lot of fun.
0: Have a super night. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay grateful. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Well, David,
1: episode number
0: 37. Oh, I need a ch- awesome. I need a chiropractor. Is there any former chiropractors in the house? <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be nice. Uh, you know that was uh, we I, yeah we did allude earlier. We've had one other author on uh, the great John Borak with his Beatles book.
1: You know we 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 like to oh, make. Oh, we had it Paul. My- we had Paul, oh, Myers. Paul.
0: Myers. Yeah, he he's he's an. We've had a couple actually has written some fantastic things. But this was more in my wheelhouse as far as what my dad and I read and, um, love. So this has been absolutely wonderful. As I said, I'm halfway through inmate 1577. Um, you know, I didn't get to ask him about his quote, talking about, uh, how writing dialogue is deceivingly difficult when you're trying to cut all the fat out and, and, and still get the point across, uh, which to me really makes a good book because I never thought about that before, but how do you, how do you cut the fat out? keep it concise, and it's still get the point across. For. Yeah, exactly. So, you yeah. kudos to Alan for doing a great job with that as well. And um, uh, one other thing I, I just want to quickly mention, David, I know we talked about earlier, but somebody popped up uh, and, and asked to mention it. A few weeks ago, we had the uh, wonderful George on from oh, The Head yeah. Boys. Yeah. Uh, very good friend of mine. Of course, The Head Boys' uh, lost album on Pop Detective. Um, and just a wonderful wonderful man. Um, he had a, a blood vessel burst in his head uh, a few days ago and in the hospital and was in a coma and um, uh, on a ventilator and I was getting I was getting information from his brother-in-law and of course we send all the best out to his family. Absolutely. what I did what I did here later today is that um, he is come he has come out of the coma and although he has not really opened his eyes or anything, he is moderately responsive to somebody uh, talking to him. Oh, and that's great. That's great, can, great news. You can tell that there's something positive going on. So God bless you, George. Uh, we all send our best to you. And um thinking of you here, God here on material issues. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But David, as we always ask, what do we got coming up in the next couple of weeks?
1: All right, well, we've got quite a bit coming up for the next month, actually, the next four weeks. Um, Next week, February 9th, we have the main man of one of the greatest bands of the Mod Revival uh, in the UK of uh, 1980s. Uh, Paul Beauvoir of the Jet Set uh, will be our guest, and he has a brand new album. I I finally got a copy, so of course it's not handy when I need it. Um, There it is. A Balloon to the Moon, and it's – it's. (laughs) I guess that's Hannah. Um, Because I don't have any kids, so you must be the dad. I must be somebody. At least I don't have any that I know of. Um, Yeah, I know. I didn't have sex back then. Okay. Um, A a Balloon to the Moon, which uh, is not mod. It's more like – it's more soft pop, uh, but it's beautiful. And oh, uh yeah. out on CD and vinyl and um, definitely something worth checking out. So we'll talk to Paul about that. And, of course, his history and all, the, all that good stuff. I'm sure he'll be an awesome guest. On February 16th, it'll be our first and hopefully not our last, our first uh, uh, guest who had a number one record on the Billboard charts. That's right. Mr. Gilbert O'Sullivan will wow. be our guest. Ah, uh, number one, a few number twos, um, other top twenty hits, and still going strong. He released an album a couple of years ago. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure he's got something in in the works. And um, his tour, which was scheduled for 2000, but 2020, I'm sorry, 2000, 2020, 2020, but was uh, <laughs> cancelled due to COVID, uh, um, is going to happen, and uh, he'll be all around the U.S. in March and April. So. Look out for him. I'm uh, thrilled to uh, be able to be going to one of his L.A. shows in March. So that'll be great. Um, that one, by the way, will be on.
0: Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that one will be on a little bit earlier, three hours earlier than usual to accommodate uh, his, his schedule in the U.K. Right. So we'll talk more about that as we get. We'll let this. you know. Yeah. Um, February 23rd. Um, member of one of the greatest power pop bands of all time. He was from the second iteration, uh, but contributed so much, uh, especially to the album Starting Over, um, which a lot of people, including our good friend John Borak, think is their best album. Yes, it's uh, Scott McCarl, of Raspberries fame, going to be on on the 23rd. Uh, He released uh, a disc called Play On, about 25 years ago and it's being reissued with bonus tracks so uh by the time he's on i think that will be out and available so we'll 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 have a lot of fun talking with scott i'm sure and then um on march 2nd four weeks from today the man who really is most responsible i feel for the power pop renaissance that took place in the mid 90s because he published the first magazine completely devoted to the genre yellow pills yes we'll be having mr jordan oaks wow Um, not only you know not only is he extremely well versed in power pop but he's a really fun guy um just hang around jordan when he came out for uh, to la for poptopia and ipo back in the 90s the guy was so full of puns and was so spontaneous uh, I mean, he had me in stitches. I don't, I'm not much of a laugher, but there were a couple of times. I remember John, me, John Borak and Jordan were in seven 11. And I don't, I don't want to give away what he said, but he had me in stitches, He had me on the floor, not being able to breathe, uh, just basically relating some seven prod, uh products to people. We knew in a way only Jordan could do. And, uh, so he, he And he hasn't lost his sense of humor at all. So this should be a lot of fun having him on, on March 2nd. And uh, we have other uh, irons in the fire. Um, I'm thinking we're going to have a really cool guest on March 9th. It hasn't been 100% confirmed, so I don't want to mention who it is yet. Um, we're looking. And, you know, again, we, uh, we're we in contact with a lot of people for the weeks. Uh, yeah, that lie ahead. So as always, we'll have some cool guests. And, and the uh,
0: and the way you're going to keep up with this stuff is if you join the material issues group on mm-hmm. Facebook, uh, or if you have to go over to materialissues.com, which takes you to the YouTube channel, you can join there. Uh, but if you join, then you're going to get the notifications that tell you what's coming up or when we're going live, and and you can uh, you can plan your Wednesday evenings, 3 p.m. Pacific Coast Time, 6 p.m. East Coast Time, something something p.m. over in the UK. <laughs> 11 yeah. p.m. 11 p.m.
1: Except for when Gilbert's on, that'll be 8 p.m. That'll be 8 p.m. A
0: little earlier. So uh, that's 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 what you got to do. Tell all your friends that yeah, you know, there's some great guests. Everything's archived uh, here on Facebook groups uh, and on uh, YouTube. So if you've missed any of the first 37 episodes, including this one, you can go back and look at it. And you can leave comments as well. But if possible,
1: please watch live because yes. and, and and leave comments while it's happening. I, I we're very grateful for those of you who yes do we that. are yes and, we uh, are we'd love we'd love more. Especially and we do have a really good are. question that we can ask spontaneously to uh, yep. to our guest. We love that. So and
0: sometimes we can't get the the question or something a uh, comment up, and it's not because you know there are some there's some spam things that happen that I, I just delete, but sometimes it just doesn't work in the flow of the conversation uh, we having with the guest and you can't just interrupt a conversation flow with, Oh, look, here, here's a, you know, so, so sometimes it doesn't always work. But yeah. We, I mean, we,
1: sometimes with me too, I sometimes can't get it up, you know? Yeah. And uh,
0: you know, and it doesn't get up. So yeah, you just move I mean,
1: on, you
0: know, but uh, we don't do, we don't, we don't single out anybody purposely. For 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 comments and say we're well, not gonna let that in. Um, no, no, of course. It not. just doesn't. Sometimes it's not in the in the flow. So, but we do appreciate everybody joining in, asking questions, and having a good time. That's what it's all about here on Material Issues. Anyway,
1: so, we've gone way way over our, our way over for a lot of time. But what the hell? We're not corporate. We can do what we want. We can do what we
0: want. I can wear calling occupants of interplanetary craft T-shirts, and David can, can come out it? with his.
1: I can show a super abnormal amount of box sets and not have to <laughs> worry about, about our audience getting turned off or creeped out and uh, and leaving. So there you go.
0: There you go. Well, my friends, uh, David, have a great night. Stay happy. Stay healthy. You too, keep, Mark. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. Uh, say hi. Love to Rena. And we'll right. see everybody yeah. next Wednesday right here,
1: Material Issues. Thank Thanks. you all very much for watching. We'll see you next week. Good night, everybody. Don't